Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today, I'm here with David Nash, who's a principal consultant, trainer, and curriculum lead for the 280 Group. David, it's great to have you here. Why don't you kick this off by giving us a quick overview of your background? Sure. It's delightful to be with you, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's see. If I haven't betrayed myself in the first 10 seconds, my accent is from New York, born and raised New Yorker. Came out to Oregon, Portland, Oregon, in the early 90s, working for Intel. And, you know, the very short version of that career is starting off in the sales organization. These were during Intel's go-go years, so just explosive growth. Moved out here to the West Coast, got into product marketing, what Intel called technical marketing, and ultimately product. So I've been out here since 93, spent about 17 years at Intel, pretty formative years for my career, and then went off to a couple of B2B enterprise software and SaaS companies since. And that's, uh, that catches us up. Awesome. Well, thank you. Talk to me about how you got into product management. Really fascinating. As I mentioned, I came out here uh, with Intel on Intel's dime in 92, 93, out of the sales force and, you know, love solving problems. Intel was still growing like crazy at that point. These were like the pre-386 days or maybe the 386 and 486s, pre-Pentium, pre-Meteoric rise. And Intel was hiring. There were some great career opportunities for us here, kind of at headquarters, so to speak. Well, headquarters theoretically was and still is in Santa Clara, but Oregon was the largest campus at that time and still is. So lots of opportunities. I came out and worked in the motherboard group. The motherboard group at Intel then was the closest thing to high-speed innovation. We did motherboards on like 11 to 13-week product cycles. They were always associated with getting new Intel processors and chipsets launched. So that was a huge factory-like business. I also was in the precursor to Intel's corporate technology group. It's called Intel Labs back then. And it was like the Starship Enterprise. We had a five-year mission to find you know cool new uses for technology. And what would happen, for example, with a confluence of cheap MIPS, cheap bandwidth, and cheap storage? So that was my first intro to product management. We didn't call them product managers. Intel had its own perversion, you know, which was reproduced at high scale, called product marketing engineers. We were all PMEs. And that title talks to a little bit of the, you know, the engineering culture. And from there, I spent a lot of the rest of my career in different roles all of them either smack dab in the middle of product or immediately adjacent to it. So you, you mentioned the innovation group. Anything amazing you know you have to work on there? Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, we worked on a lot of stuff. I'm going to be dating myself here. But my gosh, this was pre-802.11. So we had you know, pre-Wi-Fi wireless. And we used things like Swap. I don't know if anyone's going to remember that. It came out of DECT, which is a digital telephony standard out of Europe then. But the first really wireless networks at home Intel's vision back then, again, this is mid-90s at this point, was everybody needed, you know, really big, fat PCs in their house that would be the center of the universe because the internet wasn't really as evolved, you know, then as it was now. So we did a lot of really cool apps. We did things like the very first personal conferencing, the first PC-based conferencing, challenging then, you know, room-sized machines with ISDN. We had a product called ProShare 
which uh, Andy Grove introduced a precursor of in 1991 at Comdex. He was a wonderfully singular visionary storyteller, and he basically laid out the entire future. If you go look at his Comdex 1991 demo, it describes the current world we live in. So those are some of the things we worked on. Really exciting stuff, really smart people. I did some time at Intel Capital as well, which was being an investment director for our internal new business initiatives group. So we got a lot of, I got a lot of early experience in getting new businesses funded. Many of them would fail. We had a couple of base hits, but it's just kind of this whirlwind of new possibilities for technology and business then. Really fun time. Yeah, take me through a couple of those roles, right? You mentioned Intel now, but you've been senior product at a lot of large companies, Intel, CDK Global, Navex Global. Tell me some stories. Oh, it's fun. Uh, I'll try not to bore you. Well, I've moved down market. It's really funny. Intel, when I was there, I think our headcount, I left there in 2006, but our headcount crested well over 100,000 people. That was the largest company I'd ever worked in. Intel, because it was growing so quickly over the almost two decades I was there, you could reinvent yourself every couple of years. And in fact, people would get redeployed as businesses died and as new businesses came and go. There was always the next opportunity to look to. So again, at Intel, product marketing engineer, product manager, product director for IP telephony, the ProShare thing that I mentioned earlier, a number of cool seeds, many of which were in early instant instantiations of home networking, home servers, and those kinds of things. I left Intel in 2006 and went to a company which was part of ADP, the payroll people. They were called ADP Dealer Services. And Dealer Services was the preeminent and still is supplier to automotive retailers. So if you have bought a car or truck, new or used, and had a finance, had it serviced, or really done anything around new or used automotive retail, chances are good that the dealer you bought your car from is an ADP customer. ADP spun that business out into a a new publicly traded company called CDK Global in 2014. So I joined there as VP of product in, let's see, 2006, was there through 2016. And the company has been in a a very long, and I think mostly done transition from on-premises software. I mean, ADP dealer services started off with mini computers and green screens in car dealers, literally in the 80s. Hugely profitable business. They, they sold deck, you know, mini computers. And then they moved to self-hosted ASP model. Again, I feel like I'm dating myself, but history in a nutshell. And more recently, of course, into Amazon-hosted SaaS services. But learned a lot about the cost of change, switching cost, momentum, inertia of taking really large businesses and moving them into new models. So over the course of, uh, let's see, 10 years there, we grew by acquisition. We had several different businesses. We did a lot of cross-selling across the product portfolio to a typical dealer. Did a lot of work for the largest automotive retailers in the country, not surprisingly. So I learned a lot about the whales, you know, the big enterprise customers who are big spenders, but as a percentage of your portfolio, pardon me, as a percentage of your customer mix is the smallest customer segment, but highly influential. And, you know, the the good news about listening to your important customers and also the trouble you can get into when listening to uh, enterprise customers a lot. Stayed there through 2016, then went to Navex Global. Uh, Navex is a much smaller company, by the way. They are private equity owned and they are the world leader in ethics and compliance software. And they're actually headquartered here in Portland, 
terrific company, again, private equity owned, have grown also by acquisition over the years. And I really got to build and rebuild the product team really from ground zero, complete clean sheet of paper when I got there in 2016. So I moved down market and don't be fooled by the name. Navex is a, it's a global company, but not, you know, not a $2 billion company like ADP was, or of course, a $60 billion company like Intel, but terrific company. And I, I guess I have continued my moving into smaller companies unbroken now for my current part of my career when I work for a company that has about 20 people. So I like getting smaller, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, pretty soon you're going to be at a startup. It's going to be one man man <laughs> started from scratch. So, you know, PE firms are known for uh, having playbooks, right? Did they have a playbook for product management when you went to uh, Navex Global? Was there a playbook for product management? Well, Navex was owned by Vista Equity Partners. And Vista, you may know, is I think the world's largest B2B SaaS portfolio. This is Robert Smith and his team. And they had playbooks for a lot of areas. They were just getting their product management practice going in 2016 when I started there. So I helped contribute to it and you know, spent a lot of work with the portfolio. But we kind of wrote our own. They had guidelines and best practices. However, if you just use Vista's best practices blindly without adding value or reinterpreting, you know, that wasn't necessarily success either. So we used some of their best practices. We wrote a whole lot of our new ones and shared those with the portfolio. And that was very rewarding. Their product management practice, I think based mostly in Austin, grew substantially over the three years that I was with Navex. And we would have a conference once a year to bring all the port codes together, all the product and engineering leads at the port codes together and share best practices, share the lessons we had learned. And they really raised the bar. So yeah, that's, that's their real house. More detail on like how they built out that playbook, right? Well, let's see all kinds of things. I can probably speak to the portions of it that I was involved in. We learned early on in 2017 that like so many companies, we really had no clue what customers are doing in our product. So we looked at a lot of providers then. Again, this is 2016, uh, early 2017, including Pendo and a bunch of others. The world has changed, of course, substantially since then, as you well know. But we invested in Pendo and we went deep on it across first our flagship product and then several of the other products that were ramping also. And we helped write the playbook for what, you know, in-product analytics instrumentation, in-product user engagement looks like for at least for a B2B SaaS portfolio. So that was terrific. We also improved the roadmapping playbook. You know, when I got there again, they had a well-respected roadmapping process, but it was a pretty heavyweight process, very big on financials. An annual roadmap, you know, could easily be 200 pages. And that would make most people's eyes roll up in their socket wow. today, thinking about a 200-page roadmap, heavy on backup, heavy on modeling, heavy on spreadsheets. And so we took that process and we didn't abandon it because the financial rigor was really helpful doing it once or so a year. But we broke it into a lighter process, a much lighter process, did it quarterly. And then, of course, roadmaps have a pretty short shelf life, as you well know. And we would have a, a roadmap governance process we put in place that the company is using today, product council and things like that, where you could keep governance on the roadmap, understand why you were no longer doing something you said you were going to do three months ago, just because you said it three months ago, when something better or higher value 
or a quicker win or a more strategic investment came along, and that always does, you know, we would do the deltas from the annual and tune up the roadmap quarterly. So that's just, those are just a couple of quick examples of the playbooks. Yeah, no, it sounds interesting. I mean, talk to me about the changes. You went from a very robust, heavy uh, roadmap process. What were the two or three biggest changes you made there? I think the, the biggest changes were identifying the criteria. You know, as you sit around the, the boardroom table, I used to tell this story to every new product manager. As you sit around the table with every other company leader, every single person around that table probably wants at least one thing from you they're not getting, right? This is the life. This is the life of a product manager and certainly a product leader. So building alliances, getting the criteria on the table. So when, for example, the head of sales or the head of marketing or the head of customer success or implementation or professional services maybe wasn't getting the top thing on their list, they would at least understand why we were doing the roadmap in the order we were doing it. They'd understand the criteria, whether it was you know revenue or a competitive gap filler or strategic alignment, whatever it would be. That was probably the single biggest change that we put in the process. And, and having those discussions helped us make the roadmap stick so people wouldn't unring the bell. Yeah, so that, that has to be the ongoing role of product management, I think, in, in any company. Okay. Now, stepping back a little bit, especially, you know, pre-NAVX, right? Product, you know, was a relatively new role. And even at NAVX, you know, as you're building the playbook, you know, relatively new role, especially I would guess at the executive level. Did you have to evangelize the importance of product management, those early companies? You know, what was, what would be your advice today to PMs that maybe are at a company where product management isn't as well ingrained but at the same time, they see opportunities to driving their companies to be more product focused and even product led. Oh, it's a great question. You know, and the answer, there's some nuance in there. I think uh, I was not the first senior VP of product the company had. There were probably at least two people that I know of in the job before me. And they weren't there terribly long. When I interviewed with the CEO, he very proudly pointed to areas where Navex was the absolute recognized leader in the Vista portfolio, for example, in sales and marketing in various operations. And when we talked about the product management function, he said that I would probably give product management, you know, a C minus or a D today. We don't do well on it. And to which I responded, when can I start, right? Because that was something that made me really hungry. And we built that, I think, over the course of the three years, so it was less around the role of product and probably managing expectations. You know, there, there's a constant and I think generally healthy tension between product and many other functions in the company where people aren't going to get what they want. They don't understand why things take so long. And so really keeping that executive buy-in and patience and sometimes taking the heat for your team and trying to, again change the discussion from being output oriented to outcome oriented and giving your product team the headroom, right, to do the discovery, to spend time on planning and not just execute blindly things that we don't know are good ideas or not. So all of that was in the mix at Navex. Again, a terrific place. They're really growing up. And I think the practices we put in place now are the spring where they can use for the next decade to grow. So it was less around evangelizing the role of product and more about really managing executive expectations and creating a safe place for the product team to do what they needed to do. And then at some of those earlier companies, you know, did you see like product evolve from like the art that was considered less important to maybe having 
more of a craft feel around it and more executive level visibility? Yeah, yeah. You know, the three companies I worked for for any uh, amount of time were about as different as different can be. At, at Intel, again, just to recap, the product role was very technical. It was basically writing a lot of specifications. It was writing those things that we all joke about now, right? A, a product requirements document that's an inch thick, which is probably stale a week after it's written. A lot of working with large customers, for example, we would provide motherboards to Dell Computer. I'm going back 20 years. I'm not betraying any confidences. And we would design the product for one, you know, for one big OEM, and then we'd sell the same product everywhere else. So there wasn't a lot really in terms of product management as you and I would recognize it today. Very specs-oriented, very engineering-oriented. ADP and then CDK was in this very long transition, as I mentioned, from on-premises, you know, mini computers to ASP to SaaS. And there again, very strong customer-focused culture, which is essential. And there, I think the, you know, the great part about that is we spoke to customers every day and we had a lot of customer-facing people in the company. The challenge there is, again, as, as I'm sure you all know, if all you do is give customers what they ask for, <laughs> that's not a panacea either because you wind up making your products overly complex, especially when you have very large influential customers who do the workflow slightly differently. And so your product winds up getting larded up with, uh, with things that aren't necessarily helpful or pervasive. So learned a lot there about the influence of large customers, but again, being thoughtful about doing what they ask for versus what they might need. Other stuff was around lifecycle management. At Intel, really two polar opposites here. This is a great thing to contrast. At Intel, we would often, we were so early in market creation, like some of the topics I mentioned earlier, where we would fund a product and we would cancel it maybe a week before it was due because we ran out of patience and we didn't want to spend the money and Intel would do a student body left. And I had a closet full of t-shirts and golf shirts for years with product names on them, which never saw the light of day. So really, really interesting. At CDK and ADP, kind of the opposite. They had a lot of products, which were long tail products and that the products had been around forever, in some cases, 20 years or longer, but had very few customers on them. And so I literally spent the last two years of my 10 years at CDK slash ADP and end of life in products because they didn't know how to do it. And, you know, a product portfolio is like a garden, right? It takes constant nutrition, fertilizer, insecticide. You have to keep the healthy stuff growing and get rid of the unhealthy stuff. And when you don't do that for 20 years or more, it's really hard to keep that garden healthy. You kind of have to bring in the crossbow and just kill everything and start over. So, boy, I couldn't think of two more polar opposites in terms of product culture, both in the influence of large customers and in, you know, product life cycle and product retirement. Yeah. And, and now you're at a, a small company. You mentioned 20 people, you know, 280 group, kind of a, a change, a shift, a left-hand turn, if you will, from moving from large companies doing product management to now product management in a consulting and training role, right? What, yeah, what drove you to yeah. make the change? Well, it's a great question. You know, as I look back over the couple of constants over my career in these very different companies and very different product cultures, we opt into product because we love it, right? It, it checks our boxes. Product, again, as you know, is not the right job for so many people. But if you're wired for product, there's no better job on earth. So I did that for, you know, gosh, for 20 years more and 13 of it in executive positions. 
And I'll tell you, with all the crap that we do as executives and all the, you know, uh, not to diminish the work, of course, the work is vital, but with all the stuff that we do in these leadership roles that you don't want to do, the part I loved most was developing my team, helping people gain skills, help advance their careers. I promoted people over the years, often when they earned it. I lost a few good people over the years, too, because they got a great deal, you know, from uh, another company. One of the guys on my, uh, my last team was hired as a VP of product at a smaller company. And I was sad to see him go, but I was really happy for him. The point of all of this is that my role was to help prepare these folks and know that I had some little part in helping their career trajectory. So when I reflected, you know, that I was ready for my next move, what I want to do next, I really dug deep on that. And I said, you know, I've sent my own teams to these companies over the years, companies like 280 Group who do product certifications and training. My team always came back better informed, had some great practices they could put into place immediately. And I said, well, my fantasy job would be kind of doing that for the rest of my career. And so I sought out a couple of companies, including 280 Group, who I'd known as being a very generous sponsor of Product Camp Portland. And I said, hey, I think I can help you. And they agreed. And so here we are. And I've never been happier. Now, you mentioned Product Camp Portland. You were one of the, the founders of Product Camp Portland, right? I did. I did. Uh, my friend Mike Cruz and I went to Product Camp Seattle back in 2011. We'd never heard of Product Camp, did not know that it was not just a nationwide, but a worldwide phenomenon then. And it blew me away that this was kind of group therapy. You know, I'm making air quotes here that no one will see on the audio recording. That a uh, place for product managers to go where everyone knows what you do. It's kind of like Cheers, right? The Cheers bar for product managers. We could yeah, talk about absolutely. problems that we have, absolutely. solutions that we found. And we, in that moment, Mike and I said, we should do this in Portland. So that was in 2011. We did the first one in 2012. And we have run continuously since then. In fact, our product camp this year in 2020 was a week before this state, I'm sorry, a day before the state shut down for the coronavirus. We had uh, our camp this year on Saturday, March 7th. Oregon went into a state of emergency the following day, Sunday, March 8th. And, but we've been running continuously since. So it's a great place. It's for people like us. It's our tribe. And we have great sponsors like Pendo who offer services to product managers. And it's just a big tent. And we do, we do events all year long. But the product camp itself is kind of our pinnacle event that we do each spring. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the product camps around the country. I've gone to uh, product camps, I think, in eight different cities, you know, Good. over the course of the last five or six years. I haven't been to as many recently, as, as you might imagine. But uh, yeah, they've been, it, it's been very interesting to see like how they've grown up in different cities and, you know, how the content maybe shifts from city to city in large part, I think, based upon the people that are involved in putting it all together. It really is our tribe. And, you know, Pendo votes with their wallet, I know, just supporting camps around the country. And this year, even with the coronavirus crud on our heads, we still had about 300 people who showed oh, up awesome. at Portland State University. So we have a real thriving product community here in little old Portland. Yeah. I, hey, I, I love Portland. It's a, it's a great little city. 
So one of the things you talked about earlier was alignment, right? I think you used that word. You know, there's often a lot of friction between product in, in different departments, whether it be CS, engineering, you know, sales. Rich has some great stories about PMs and sales. Rich Miranoff, if you ever Oh, yeah, it's a good friend. Here's, here's some funny things. Talk about alignment and how you get those teams to work together and kind of ease that friction. Well, first off, I want to say really for the record that of all the places I've worked, my last role at Navex probably had the the most awesome product and dev engineering relationship anywhere. You know, it was a true partnership. We could complete each other's sentences. When I say we, I mean myself and the vice president and then senior vice president of dev, but not just that, every product manager, every director with their corresponding dev lead could complete each other's sentences. So trust was really high. And there was no accident. Trust was high because they knew that we had their backs. We knew that if we put it in the backlog, that it was something really valuable. We weren't doing stuff just because we could. We tried to speak with data everywhere we could. We couldn't always, and there's certainly an area for improvement for a lot of companies, but everywhere we could, we'd bring data to the table. And so they knew that they were building something that the world really wanted to have. So I have to say, I wish every product leader and product team would have the same relationship with engineering that we uh, had, and I'm sure they still have at Navex. With other departments, again, I think there's, there's normal, generally healthy tensions that happen. We had a great relationship with, with sales and with our marketing partners and our product marketing partners. I think there are tensions that, again, are overwhelmingly healthy that you'll see from time to time with CS organizations, customer success sometimes implementation. And the reason why, it's, it's not hard to understand why. They're with customers every day. Those customers have all kinds of wants. Our CSs are you know, all around monetizing those customers, especially the big spenders over their relationship. And there's things those customers want that are the most important thing in the world to that CSM, right? Just like the big enterprise account is the most important account in the world to that sales manager. And so sometimes we had to say no more often than we'd like. We have to say, not yet, or tell me why. And so that just takes work. That takes constant transparency on what you're building and why. Again, as I joked before, when everyone around the table is there and all of them are not getting something they want from you, everyone has to know why you're doing the things you are. So that takes work. It means our product managers would have to spend time, not have to as in punishment, because again, it's a great day when a product manager is spending time with big accounts, but we would just do everything we could to build relationships with the CSMs, with the implementation team. Another great example, our implementation team and professional services team would ask us for tooling all the time. And tooling, by the way, is this category that I give to any kind of internal uh, project, which may not necessarily be customer-facing, often isn't, and might help the implementation teams or the support teams or professional service teams stand up customers faster or with fewer errors. And those kinds of things normally got pushed to the bottom. For years, it got pushed to the bottom of the roadmap because they weren't revenue-generating, they weren't customer-facing. And so, again, it took us a couple of years, but we finally created an environment in 2019 where we could actually do those kinds of projects and they paid rich dividends. So there's just a group that I think product organizations in many companies are not situated to spend a lot of time on because they're not revenue facing. So I think there's a real key lesson in there to take these tooling projects seriously. They may not affect the top line, but they almost always affect the bottom line in a big way. 
You know, and some of your answer in the beginning too, when you were talking about, you know, communication makes me think too about product ops because I see product ops as a hub for communication among a lot of different roles or a lot of different responsibilities. And I've seen that growing as a practice. What's your view on the need and the role of product ops? I am maybe the world's biggest fan for product ops. I didn't know what it was. Because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And a couple of years ago, we were going through growth pains, like a lot of successful, quick-growing companies. And I learned of this vision of product ops being kind of a kissing cousin of DevOps or RevOps or sales ops, organizations which in fast-growing SaaS companies are all around automation, all around knocking down barriers and silos and creating connected tissue and as, as you can appreciate, product is probably the single most important place in the entire company to have that connected tissue and that continuum, that well-oiled interchange for strategic planning, for delivery, for execution, and those kinds of things. So we brought together some existing groups in the company, and we created a products team. We had a terrific lady who ran one of our pubs groups. We promoted her into be the director of this team. She did a terrific job in kind of laying the foundation for ProdOps. And let me take a moment to describe ProdOps as we did it, because ProdOps, again, varies quite a bit as you look across the literature and the best practices today. So for us, it provided a lot of capabilities. It it did, for example, roadmap governance. I mentioned that before, right? Uh, Deviations from the roadmap, making sure that our criteria is changed, our plan of record is changed. When you change the roadmap, you know, you very clearly document why. Uh, release management also, not deployment, right? Deployment was all around DevOps and engineering, but release management and making sure that, you know, when we threw the release toggles on something that, you know, we could really deliver a bunch of business value there and we could do it consistently across products because in a rapidly growing company, you have different product managers who are each strong in different areas. And some of them are really trying to develop skills and close gaps in other areas and so when you have inconsistencies across PMs or products, that really starts to hurt you when you're, when you're quick growing. So roadmap governance, release management, pricing and packaging also. We had to do it better. We had to do it consistently. We had to centralize it. In product data and feedback, right? I mentioned Pendo before. We wanted to make sure that we had a standardized playbook right? For capturing data, for instrumenting, we put up consistent dashboards. Now, not every product needed the same dashboard because they may have been in different places in their product lifecycle. But for goodness sake, we wanted to make sure that we were being consistent in how we captured and curated and communicated that data. So the KPIs and reporting, we wanted to make sure that we ran our pre-release programs. In the old days, we call them beta programs, but more often and more currently, they're early adopter programs. So what data are we capturing, you know, pre-release? How are we feeding that forward into the product? And then, of course, the other maybe ho-hum, but really vital things like training, publications, documentations help. We wanted to make sure, you know, we used Pendo guides in a huge way. So when we're doing in-product user intervention in the moment, we want to make sure we're using best practices the same way leveraging across. So that's a lot. And that, I think, is a much broader view than many of the ProdOps organization charts that at least I've seen over the last couple of years. For us, it was a good-sized team. There were about 10 or 12 people on that team when I moved on last fall, and they were generally recognized as doing a great job, providing a lot of value, and smoothing out all those inconsistencies between products and, and product managers. 
Yeah, I would say we have a similar set of responsibilities, a lot of overlap. You know, we don't have pricing and packaging in there, but a lot of the same things mm-hmm. delivered by the product op teams at, at Pendo. You know, we, we talked about this roadmap process a little bit earlier and, and made me think, and I didn't delve into at the time, frameworks, right? Have you often built frameworks for building and shipping features? Like, and, and how do you build those frameworks? What data fuel your decisions for those frameworks? Sure, that's a great question. And that, that too has been a journey. You know, when I first became responsible for the company's entire roadmapping process in early 2017, again, the process to that point was was a pretty heavyweight process, a lot of financial data, a lot of modeling for revenue, five-year model kind of stuff. And the roadmap was a product manager's worst nightmare, right? Everything had delivery dates. It was all the things that we have since come to recognize are not helpful and often set you up to disappoint or to just to fail outright. So the first thing I did, which I thought would be heresy, was throw away the dates on the roadmaps and get into the so-called now, next, later format. This I never thought would actually go over. It did. And I'm eternally grateful to my peers and to our leaders that, you know, in terms of talking to customers externally and with sales and now, next, later thing gave us those degrees of freedom. Now, by the way, I generally link that to the quarter we're in, you know, the, the 90 days we're in now, and it would reflect the backlog, right? Things you were committed to building. So that was an expression of commitment. Next was probably the rest of the calendar year. And that was an intention of maybe not commitment, but intention. And there, those were things we were going to do next if nothing better came along. And later it might be a year out, right? Later was used primarily for discovery, for phishing, for providing some thought leadership and showing customers that, you know, we were thinking about things that were important, even if they weren't yet. So now next later was important. The other things with respect to road mapping process was, let's see, you know, focusing on strategic alignment, focusing on a couple of key strategic must-dos so we could force rank. At the end of the day, you have to force rank your roadmap because whether you have 10 engineers or 10,000 engineers, there's never enough engineers to fuel your dreams, right? Everybody's always capacity constrained in some way or another, either yeah, heads or, or capital. Yeah, you know, Rich, you, you mentioned Rich before. We joke about this all the time. There's never enough engineers to fuel your dreams. So you have to make tough calls. And so the road mapping would be really crystal clear on what the selection criteria was, because I'd rather not fight, but I'd rather, you know, discuss and negotiate what the levers are up front. And then we could assign those various weightings to everything on the stack rank list. So at the end of the day, they'd be in order. And then there'd be a line drawn by what your capacity limits were. And then it'd be things below the line. So that I think was probably the single biggest transformative thing we did was not just do things because they sounded good, but because they were going to have the alignment with the things that company held most important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure I fully answered your question, though. There was another part of your question that I may not have answered. Uh, I mean, I, I think it was good. It was really just about product team frameworks, right? Building and shipping data, you know, how you fuel, what data you use maybe to fuel your decisions. Oh, yeah, yeah, the part data part. Yeah. Really into. yeah, super important. I mentioned Pendo before, but, but Pendo as a proxy for any good tool that allows you to really understand user journey. So we would... We instrumented our products 
everywhere because why not, right? There's no excuse not to. And we would, you know, over the course of the last two years, we started getting data in showing, this won't surprise anybody at Pendo, of course, that, you know, a very small number of features are used by an overwhelmingly large part of customers, large number of customers, rather. We segmented it a lot, so we understood very quickly what would be most important features for for example, a regulated customer versus a non-regulated customer. Some features that we did a lot of hand-wringing over about, oh, we can't take that feature away. Guess what? Turned out they had very little use. And we could turn those things off and nobody would cry. Nobody would complain. Nobody would call support. So we took some things out of the product that nobody missed. And that freed up capacity. We had to do a number of tech dev things, right, to change a SQL engine or to change browser infrastructure or JavaScript. And every time you did that, you had to refactor stuff. So the instrumentation came in handy tremendously. It became essential for not just deciding what to do, but for estimating things as well. So we also could correlate usage with customer success and revenue. And we could give our CSMs for the first time ever a heads up about how their customers were using our product or not. So they could then telegraph that back to their buyers. You know, in B2B space, it's so often the case that the buyers and users are different. And in a lot of cases, the person that we had a relationship with didn't know how their own company was using our product. So the instrumentation helped us tremendously rank and prioritize our roadmap and do a lot of tactical decisions as well in terms of do this and then that or get rid of this feature and no one's going to miss it, et cetera. So once you do this, once you open that that third eye and no longer have this blind spot, there's no going back. Yeah, I mean, you, you talked a lot about what I would consider impact and measuring product impact. Is, is that the advice you'd give to product managers? You know, Because I, I believe all product managers should make sure they're thinking about impact and what impact the product has. You, you have to, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Eric. You have to start with what does a win look like for your user? You know, what do they want? When, and whether it's jobs to be done, I'm not trying to be pedantic, but whatever methodology you use, jobs to be done or other, really understanding what success looks like for your user, give them that and then align that, correlate that with a business win. Maybe it's your monetization metric, your value metric, or some other thing where the company wins when customers win, when users win. When usage goes up, the customer's clearly winning. They're getting more value from your product. You can feel good about monetizing that and and growing with your customers so uh, both parties win together. So that's a really key thing. Again, I wish I knew 20 years earlier, right, to really focus on the user first, you know, make sure you're empathizing, make sure you're onboarding them really quickly, give them those really quick wins the first time they're in the product, get them to start using more advanced features. It makes the product much stickier for them. It raises switching costs and they become just delighted with your product. And guess what? You make more money, you have better retention, lower churn, all those things go together when you focus on the user first. What about product principles? Is that something you put in place when you're at these different companies? Uh, what's your philosophy around that and how that might help with decision-making with limited resources? Because you know none of us have the, the 100,000 engineers we want. And if we did, we'd probably want a million. That's very true. You know, I have a long list of things I try to do and probably a shorter list of principles. So in no particular order, uh, here they are. They're not even in alphabetical order. This is like a complete random order. But since you asked, I really believe in teams being empowered. 
And that means, again, if me as the product executive has to take the heat or catch bullets, whatever the phrase is that you like, to give our product managers the, the clearing, right, to do discovery right, to do strategic planning right, and not just be focused on delivery all the time, that's super important. I think, as I mentioned earlier, product's not for everybody. And there's a lot of people who would probably lose their minds or have their heads explode if they were put into product management positions. But for those of us wired this way, we bring our passion also. We have to be good storytellers, right? We have to enroll people, not just the people who dig what we're doing and understand, but you have to enroll your skeptics too, right? And bring them along. So be a good storyteller, be data informed, as I mentioned earlier, but don't be a slave to the data. You know, there's this nuance now we're seeing a lot in, in product circles about data-driven versus data-informed. And again, maybe it's a little pedantic, but I think being data-informed is absolutely essential. But don't be a prisoner to the numbers because you, you still, there's a place for judgment, but have a hypothesis and, you know, prove yourself wrong if you can't prove yourself right. Paul Sappho said probably 25 years ago, he coined the phrase, have a strong opinion, weekly held. And I love that. I've been quoting him. I should probably have been paying him for the last 20 years because I use that saying all the time, which means have a hypothesis. Why are you going to add that feature? Why are you going to remove that feature? You may often be wrong. In fact, you'll, you'll probably be wrong until you prove yourself not wrong by changing or pivoting and getting some supporting data. Don't fall in love with your own ideas. These are some of my big principles. Last but not least, is one that I think was helpful in creating that engineering relationship that I was bragging about earlier. Never, ever, ever throw engineering under the bus, ever, right? Because we're all human, we're in this thing together. Uh, on any given day of the week, engineering is going to do something which may be pulled in early, you know, beat the schedule, maybe jumped ahead a couple of stories in the backlog, and then there'll be time something breaks, something is fragile, and you couldn't get something out the door, or it went out and there were defects. That's just life in the big city and fast-moving software teams. And I learned a long time ago that you know when engineering or our product team had a good day, that was on them. But when things were bad and we were having a crappy day, that was on me. So that is something that I've lived and you know probably put myself in precarious positions in the course of my career because I would also take the heat if there was any issue where our engineering team, for whatever reason, you know couldn't deliver the goods that day. So. That's my philosophy in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I think those are a good series of or set of core values for a product team. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the future. What, what trends do you see in the next few years that are really going to affect the craft? Oh, gosh, there's a few. What an exciting time to be in, in product management. I think this notion of digital product management and digital transformation is huge. And again, it's in really uh, another set of ambiguous terms. So let me try to make it simple. When I talk about digital PM and digital transformation, I don't just mean for the digital natives like Pendo, right? And 10,000 other companies who were born as SaaS companies. But I talk about companies that may be in banking, financial services, pharmaceuticals, industrial goods, companies who need to transform their product practice. And because what got them here is not going to take them forward. So transformation for the rest of the world who are not digital natives, I think is essential. And there's a much bigger opportunity for us to help those companies, particularly you know, working for a company like 280, where that's what we do, is to help those companies kind of get the playbook and get the best practice of digital natives when that's very different than the business that they may have been in for the last hundred years. So that's huge. Product-led growth also, there's no question about it. 
is top of the charts now. I didn't fully appreciate this three years ago, but in the last three years, it's also really come into its own. And the product-led growth, very simply, your product starts to become much more of your marketing channel, your sales channel, your monetization channel. This allows us to get tremendous economies and drive stickiness, drive retention, reduce churn, and sometimes consolidate and maybe reallocate you know, uh, other organizations that may be expensive organizations to operate. I don't think product is going to replace the sales force, particularly in B2B companies and enterprise companies anytime soon, but product-led growth is absolutely essential. So those are it. I don't think these things are flashes in the pan. I think these are durable. They're going to be absolute climate change uh, over the next several years. Yeah, I would agree with you on, on both those counts. So as we're wrapping up here, let's turn to you. What's your favorite product? Oh, gosh. Uh, I reflected on this one a little bit, suspecting you might ask me this question. I have to say it's my Tesla Model 3, but not for the reasons you might think. Yes, it's the coolest car I've ever driven, but it's my fourth EV. I was driving EVs back in 2010 when the Nissan Leaf was new and I drove a Chevy Bolt. So I've been an EV early adopter, but the car is so much more than that. In fact, this car and the company is kind of the poster child for things I mentioned earlier in our conversation. Number one, they're all about customer delight. If you've ever seen the Kano model for, you know, for table stakes and, and product exciters and product delighters, Tesla must have studied with Professor Kano because the car delights me every day. There's some really cool thing in there that I didn't know I needed or I never expected in the car. And the car is, in a sense, an, an iPhone on wheels, right? It gets software updates, not to fix defects or to do you know, vanity things, but to add capabilities for the car. When I bought the car, they promised me self-driving, and that has been routinely, continuously delivered over the year that I've owned the car. I'm in self-driving mode in that car nearly 100% of the time when I'm on the freeway. And it blows my mind. These are early days, but if this is the worst the technology is ever going to be, it's going to be absolutely incredible someday. So that's number one. It's just delighting me with, with product features that you know ruined me for ever buying any other car. Number two is whole product, right? I'm a whole product fan. That means it's not just the car. It's the financing, right? It's the charging. It's the whole ownership experience, which Tesla has done an unbelievable job on. Their innovation cycle, again, is insane. Nobody innovates like Tesla and Elon Musk's other company, SpaceX. But the, the thing that really sticks with me is that they showed how you could be innovative in a product category that's 100 years old. Who would have thought that the most innovative product today that's commercially available and increasingly affordable was in an automobile? I think they embarrassed the heck out of the major automotive OEMs in this country and around the world by taking this slow-moving industry that innovated on 10-year cycles and innovating on a one-year cycle. So going back to digital transformation, if Tesla can do this to a stodgy, old, slow-moving product category like the automobile, can you imagine how many other companies could kind of follow that playbook and do equally transformative, just wow, transformations in their, in their products? Yeah. I mean, it is pretty powerful what Tesla has been able to do. So David, one, one final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. Oh gosh, I, I don't know if I can get to three words, maybe three couplets. I like to think I'm a lifelong learner. Every day, if I'm not learning, it's not a good day for me. Sorry, that was, that was probably my three-word budget in that one thing. No, no, it's so like three-word. Cut me some slack. That's my first of the three. 
And number two is I'm easily bored, right? So I love doing new stuff all the time. And number three is I'm an ultimate geek. You know, I'm a product geek. I'm a tech geek, always been, always will be. And for something like product that for so long and for so many years was not rigorous and didn't use the scientific method and was all about, you know, cult of personality, product has become ever more geeky and rigorous and quantitative over the last few years. And so that like, that checks every box that I need to get out of bed in the morning. Awesome. Well, thank you, David. This was great. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.